Good practice for a second career as a waiter. Gonna make it happen. I think I was a waiter for about two months one time. Man, for people that do that as a living, y'all, y'all work really, really hard. Um, glad you do that, <laughs> but not my, not my job. Uh, man, we're glad to be here. Good to see everybody. Um, I'll go ahead and warn you today is, man, we're back in 1 John and kind of at this, this middle junction in the book that um, has been misused frequently, has been misquoted frequently, has been misapplied frequently. Um, and it's not like a super comfortable topic for us as Americanized Christians, uh, because today we're talking about a word that starts with S, ends with N, and there's an I in the middle, and it's sin, believe it or not, and it's real, it's in Scripture, and it's just, man, it's not one of those topics that we love to talk about. It's not one of those things like you hear, man, the pastor's teaching on like the two things, like if a pastor teaches on these two things and you know ahead of time, it's probably going to be a lake day for a lot of people. Uh, not in the winter because the lake's not so pleasant, but like sin and money, like those two. Like if you hear that a pastor's teaching about those two things, like, ah, I got other places to be. So we're glad you're here. Um, and if you've been following along and you knew that was coming, man, even better, glad you're here. Um, I do want to give, uh, for those people that are tuning in digitally, sorry the audio was not on at the very beginning. You missed some announcements and stuff like that. They'll be in the comments after worship is over, and uh, we'll make sure that you get a chance to read those so that you can stay up to date. And thank you for everybody that does tune in weekly that's not here. Uh, I know that's not normal. I know you're doing it for, uh, for noble and good reasons. And so we miss your faces. We miss you being here shoulder to shoulder, but we understand, and uh, we're glad you're, glad you're there. Um, but we're also glad that you're kind of here at the same time. And for the rest of you, hey, it's good to see your faces. Glad you're here. Um, let me go ahead and give a couple tendencies that we have when we, when we look at texts like this that are about sin and we've been following Jesus for a while, there's, there's three dangers that I think we need to be aware of before we even open and look at the particular text. Uh, when we're talking about sin as believers, I think the first danger is that it can lead us to a place of self-righteousness in which we begin to compare our sin to other people and we see other people that are living much worse than us. And so what we do because of the comparison mentality is we think higher of ourselves than we should and less of other people and we move towards a place of self-righteousness. It doesn't lead towards repentance. It doesn't lead towards any of the things that make us look more and more like Jesus. As a matter of fact, it pushes us in the opposite direction. Uh, the second response that we can often have is the opposite uh, we can enter into a place of self-loathing instead of self-righteousness. Uh, we can do the exact same thing. We can look at other people and we can look at their lives and assume that they have it all together. We can see our lives and say, man, we do not. And as a result, God must love them more and hate me. And so that brings us to a place of self-loathing, just as unbiblical as the first uh, and just a, a different response. Uh, the third place that I think is probably the most common um, is we can get to a place of denial. Uh, we can read and we can hear about sin and we can move to a place of trying to be like an ostrich in the sand. We want to bury our head and we'd rather not talk about it. We'd rather talk about grace. We'd rather live in grace. We would rather live in all of these positive things because if we talk about sin and think about it, then we have to admit certain things. We have to confess certain things. We have to confront certain things. And so it's either self-righteousness, self-loathing, or denial. Today, the goal is none of those three, okay? Today is none of those three. Today, the goal is just an honest look at um, this particular passage that can trip us up if we don't deal with it well, and, and we just kind of want to have a talk about sin, conviction, what it's all here for, and what do we do with it. Um, let me pray, and we're going to jump into uh, the latter part of chapter 2 and go through chapter 3, verse 10 in First John. 
God, we love you. We thank you for your word today, um, even the words that sometimes we don't want to hear. God, sometimes I think we should be more thankful for those. Thank you for uh, confronting us about who we are, but more importantly, thank you for informing us who you are and who we are as a result. Uh, I pray that your word would speak louder than any other temptation today. I pray that it would speak louder than, than any other distraction. Um, God, I pray that your voice uh, would be the loudest in the room today. Uh, God, we thank you. We love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So on the heels of where we finished last week, if you have not been caught up with where we are in 1 John last week, we, we talked about capital A, Antichrist, but also plural, lowercase a, Antichrist, um, people that are not just opposed to Jesus, but actually want to lead us away from Jesus as well, because they probably left uh, what they thought about Jesus, and, and they want us to come along. And, and it was a warning, and we looked at that, like, here, here's John loving these people in and around Ephesus, and he's like, I need to tell you of certain people that are going to come, and they're already here, so just be prepared, and how do we deal with them? Today, there's, um, we're kind of back in kind of a blending of what the book has looked like and what it looked like last week, because we didn't have warnings really up until last week. We had the, the series of if-then statements, the indicators of our faith, the indicators of if we know Jesus, then this should occur. If we know Jesus, then this should not occur. So uh, today's kind of a blend of both. There's a little bit of warning there. There's some conditional statements, um, but it's in, in very important that we today, probably more so than any other place in this particular book, that we... Uh, Man, we'd be diligent to be good students, because if we don't think well, we could take something out of this passage that it's not saying, so we just, we need to think well. And I'm going to do my best to convey that, the best that I can, so that it's not super confusing. I remember uh, when I was at Clemson, we had, um, we had a, uh, an, angry, an angry preacher that would visit campus every year. Um, I don't know if you went to Clemson around the time that I did, it was around 98 to 02, and, and every year <clears throat> we had this same guy, and he would make his journey and he would show up on campus, and he would gather a large crowd about him um, near the amphitheater in front of the library, probably one of the prettiest places on campus um, if you're a tiger. And even if you're not, you have to admit it, it's pretty nice. Um, and he would stand out there, and he would preach the gospel, but he would also preach another message that sounded something like this. Um, and he would use this text. And, and most of the time I, I passed him by, but one day I decided to stop and engage, and it was a, it was a big mistake, to be honest. But he would use this text uh, to tell people that if you claim Jesus and you have sinned since that time, then you really don't know Jesus. He would take this text and he would read it aloud, and, and he would read it in, in, to be honest, because there are some translational issues, which we'll get to here. He would read it in King James, and, and the King James reads a little bit different from what we're going to read today. We'll talk about that. But he would read it, and he would pitch it out there, and he would say, once we come to Christ, we are sinless. We do not sin anymore. And what that caused in a lot of people, of course, was a ton of anger, and they got mad, and I think he fed off of it. And one day I did too, and I engaged him, and, and it, was, it was a mistake. It was, like, it, it was a mistake, um, and I later repented for that. But on that particular day, uh, I, I made the mistake. There, there is this tension that we are going to encounter in this particular text, but, but in life in general, like, if Jesus has redeemed me, if he's bought me with a price, uh, why are some of these struggles still here? Why do I still fight some of these things? I'll be honest, today we're, we're probably not going to answer that question. Um, but we are going to answer the question as to uh, can we still sin if, if we're following Jesus and what do we do about that? So chapter, chapter 2, verse 28, 
Uh, let's read the latter parts of that, uh, 28, and we'll go through verse 3 um, in chapter 3. And it says, And now, little children, abide in him. The same way we finished last week. It says, Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Before we get to the part of the text where we're going to spend the most of our time, I think this particular passage, the way that it, it jumps in, even at the end of chapter 2, is it gives us kind of a, a current situation, like a state of the state kind of a deal. I think that's a, that's a common theme right now. I think we had our, our governor give a state of the state. Here's our state of the state as, as Christ followers. Um, the first thing that we need to understand before we go any further is that... Uh, because God loved us so much, He made us His kids. We have to start there. He loved us so much that He made us His children. Not by any work of my own, not by any goodness of my own, but we talk about the gospel every week, and we will talk about it every week, but through the goodness, through the righteousness, by grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, as a result of God's huge, immense, undeniable, and inescapable love, He's made us His kids. And as a result of making us His kids... Um, He's also making us not just kids, but he's turning us into kids who look more and more like Jesus. That's his goal. We call that sanctification from biblical terms, but it's us being set apart, being pulled out of the world to a degree and made different, but not just different, holy like Jesus. And we're being changed from one degree to another, as Scripture says, from people who were once strangers and aliens in the world to people who are separate and different from the world who are looking more and more like Jesus. And that's the reason he says, they did not know him and they do not know you. You look different. We are different. Strangers, aliens here. We're being made into something different. But here's the other realization and the other starting place. We have to understand that even though we're being turned into people, sanctified into people that look more and more like Jesus, there's also this admission, and this is, man, this leads us right into where we're going to talk about. We have to understand that we are not there yet. Like we are being perfected, we are being completed, we are being made whole, but we are not there yet. Now, I think here's the first danger in this particular passage. We can hear that and we can say, oh, well, it's okay that, that I sin. It's okay that I mess up. It's okay that I transgress. Well, we're not going that far, but just understand we're not there yet. He says this in verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as, we, as He is. We're not perfected yet, but it's coming. It's coming. We talked about last week that uh, the, the apostles and the epistles were written from the mindset that Jesus was coming back at any moment, like he was coming. And because they're kind of in this, uh, this latter stage or this last act of the redemptive story, goes from creation to fall to restoration to redemption. Because we were in this phase of waiting, I mean redemption, restoration, because we're in this phase of waiting for full restoration, uh, they believed that it was going to occur at any moment. And, and Jesus told them, no one knows the hour or the day except the Father, so don't pretend to, but, it, but it's okay to be prepared. In this particular place, the starting place, they're telling us, we're being made into people that look more and more like Jesus. We're not there yet, but we need to be ready so that when he does come back, to a degree, we're not embarrassed. 
That's a strange motivation, looking at grace and looking at faith, but, but that's exactly what he says. He says, and now little children, abide in him or live in him, carry on with him, so that when he appears or returns, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So already, before we even get into that S-I-N word, John's letting us know that our behaviors and what we do in light of what God is doing in us matters. It matters. We're his kids because he loved us. He's making us look more and more like Jesus but we're not there yet. And as a result of not being there yet, we have to go ahead and understand and, and, and place our, our, our heart in this place of there's going to be tension. Tension between who God is making me to be and who I currently am. Tension between who God is making me to be and who I currently am. Paul frequently used the language of, of flesh and spirit. He's like, my flesh wants this, my spirit wants this. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So we have to start there. And so let's, let's go ahead and move on to verses 4 through the rest and bring up kind of some of the, the sticky wickets of this passage. Verse 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appears to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot Keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, on the outset, let's go ahead and admit it's a tough passage. Like, it's hard to wrap our mind around because we know that we've been bought. Hopefully you know that. Hopefully you realize that the price that we were purchased with was Jesus' body, Jesus' blood, Jesus' life. It was a high price to save us from the result of sin, which is eternal separation from God. Big deal. And now this passage, when we read it, uh, especially if we go, and, and here's the catch, if we go and read it as close to the way that it was written, it creates some great confusion. Now, the ESV and the NASB, several of the more modern English translations, are going to say everyone who makes a practice or keeps on sinning uh, is not of God. That's the way that it's going to be translated here. But, but here's the reality. Koine Greek and the way that Greek was written back then and English don't always work well together. And so if you grew up with the King James, then you're going to read this, and it's going to say something like whoever sins uh, is not of God, period, just just the word sins. And so that creates, some, that creates some confusion. Because the word they used for sin, had it, it, didn't, it didn't cover the tenses that we have. It's not written the same way. They didn't have as many words as we have. And so there was just this, this understanding and this reading. If we read it at face value without being students, we read it and it makes me go, so if I sin, I don't know Jesus. If I sin, I, I don't know God. How, how is this possible? Well, here's what we have to do, and this is, man, this came up in a, a Bible study that I'm a part of on Wednesday mornings a couple weeks ago. Um, when we come to a confusing place in Scripture, here's how we handle it as students of Scripture. Uh, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's our first responsibility. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. Um, and what that means is if we come to a place that's a little bit muddy, 
by our understanding. We don't assume that it is wrong. We assume that we're missing something. We're not understanding everything that is at play. And so our first step is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The same thing that translationists would do and Bible translators would do, and the same reason we've landed on the way that most modern English translators translate this the way that we have it today. And so the first step is to look at immediate context. Okay, a lot of people have, have jumped into reading the Bible in a year this year, the five-day reading plan. Thank you for those guys and, and gals who are doing that, continue to do that. If you'd like more information, we'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, and I'll just tell you that there are going to be times where we're going to read something, and it's going to be a little bit strange. We're going to be like, I don't understand. Our first responsibility is look to Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we look to immediate context first. Immediate context here would be the letter of 1 John. The same thing that First John's already been telling us. Maybe you can go back and think through what we've already taught through, but if you can't, um, here's, the, here's the question that's brought up here by reading the text. Can a Christian still sin? Okay? So if we're interpreting by using Scripture, I think we go back to First John 1, 8 through 10 first, and, and it's going to say this. Same letter written to the same people for the same reason. says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the question is put out there, can a Christian sin? Well, John, in the very beginning of his letter, is telling us that if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And not only are you a liar, but you're also making Jesus a liar if you're saying that you have no sin. So this text that may be muddy, that may be a little bit confusing... It must be saying something else other than a Christian cannot sin. And further, he continues in chapter 2, verse 1, and and he says this. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if we're letting Scripture interpret Scripture, and we had the question, can I sin if I'm a believer, or does that discredit me? John is saying otherwise earlier in this letter. Because he just said, look, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. You, you do, because we're all going to fight that battle. And then he says, if you say that you're not a, you have no sin, you're also making Jesus a liar, which we'll get to in just a moment. And then he said, the intent of this letter is I'm writing you this, let me be honest, so that you may not sin. But if you do, or when you do, understand we have an advocate. And so the question that's being asked is, can a, can a believer sin, if we're looking at the immediate context, I think we already start to see that John knew that believers would sin, and so there's a purpose for him writing the letter. He even referenced back to the fact that we would make him a liar, referencing to Jesus. And even if we go back for further support, like if you need more, if you need, to be, if you need your heart to be assured just a little bit more, we're not looking for liberty or license for sin, we're just looking for understanding. When Matthew, in the book of Matthew and also in Luke, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, the Lord's Prayer, which we talked about last year. Like he even ta- he went through the whole way and he said, when you pray, pray like this. First, you start with our Father who lives in heaven. Your name is great, all of these things. But then he gets down to uh, chapter 6, verse 12, and he says, and we even ask God for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins or forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive those who trespass against us. And he's speaking to people that knew him that would later go on to teach other people that knew him and they would teach them the same thing. And he's saying, so First John and taking Matthew into account too, if you say you have no sin, not only are you a liar, but you're making Jesus a liar. This is just one of many instances in which Jesus assures us even after we know him, the battle will still be there. We will still sin. Romans 7, 14 through 19, just one more spot. 
that we'll run to really quickly before we continue. Romans 7, this is Paul, like Paul, wrote most of the New Testament. You know, by, by all accounts, we go to the Old Testament, we look at Isaiah, uh, he, he called God holy, holy, holy. By all intents and purposes, he would have been just one holy, a super great dude. Uh, Paul would have been that guy in the New Testament, most likely. Aside from Jesus, this guy is the one that we look to as kind of an archetype of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. In chapter 7 here, before Paul launches into a very theologically rich few chapters, he says, there are days in which the battle in me does not go well. Like, I want to do righteousness, I want to keep the law, but for some reason sin is at the door, in his words, and it's just waiting. And basically he says later, uh, I'm sitting there and I do something good according to the law, and sin's waiting there, there for me right after to trip me up. Paul is even confessing, look, in me is the desire to do the law, to pursue righteousness, uh, but the law convicts me because I frequently do wrong. I, I mess up. I sin. We're going to call it what it is. I, I sin. So before we continue further in this passage, the question of can a believer still sin, the answer is yes. Now, don't let that give us peace, <laughs> and don't let it uh, give us this idea that we can go out and do anything we want because that's not the case either. Um, but there is, there is that, that answer. So let's look at this passage for maybe not what it could be confusing us to, to make us believe, but what it's actually saying. Let's start again at verse 4. It says, everyone who makes a practice, and this is the reason modern translators have added makes a practice or keeps on instead of just using the word sin. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So if it's not saying that a believer, uh, if it's not saying that if a believer sins, they doesn't know Jesus, what is it saying? I think it's saying this. I, I know that it's saying this. If we go out and we continually, perpetually sin... Uh, and there is no remorse, no conviction, no correction, then we have a problem. If we are in a mode of unchecked sin, it's pointing us to an understanding that we cannot possibly know God. Unchecked sin, unrepentant sin, no need for repentance, there's a problem. The if-then statement that's sitting under the surface of this passage is this, uh, If you are sinning and you don't have a problem with it, then you are not one with God through Jesus. And I know that's a harsh statement, but the passage attests to this very thing, that if we go out and we just do whatever we want with no regard for what we're doing and there's no checking in me, there's no conviction in me, then we we have a big problem. The problem is we don't know God. We can claim whatever we want. We can state whatever we want. We can write whatever we want. We can wear whatever bracelet we want, as rubber and as nice and as silicon as it is. We can put whatever bumper stickers on the back of our car that we want. We can wear whatever beautiful T-shirt we want. That's a, that's a tri-blend T-shirt, and it's super comfortable, and that's just my tangent for the day. They're the best T-shirts. It doesn't matter. If sin does not bother us, 
we can't possibly know God. And you say, well, that's a rather dogmatic view. No, it's, it's not. Because understand the beginning of this passage, what we were being told is that we are children of God, made that way by the love of God, and He is making us into people that look more and more like Jesus. And then this passage even says, uh, understand that the reason that He came was to take care of this problem, to fix this problem, this thing that we could not fix, and that was sin. If we can go out and just live however we want with no regard for the standards that God has set, we, we have a problem. Perpetual, unchecked sin. He continues in verse 7 a little bit further. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Again, there's that warning. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, only because of Jesus. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot, not will not, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Like here, he, he starts this, this other part of the passage, and he says, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Like we talked about last week, there will be people that will try to lead you astray with different beliefs about Jesus. And the indicator last week was that if they say that Jesus is anyone other than the Son of God and that God and Jesus are not one and the same, then they're an antichrist. They are opposed to Jesus, and they will try to lead you astray. In this particular passage, he's alluding to another type of deception that people will come in and they will tell you that what you do does not matter. What you do does not matter. That grace has covered it all, which is an entirely true statement, but that sin is, is no, longer, it's no longer a big deal. You may do whatever you choose. Problem is, this passage says that's not true. We can go back a little bit earlier to Romans, to a chapter previous from where we just were, and, and I think we even have that one. We can throw that one up. Romans chapter 6, speaking to the people of Rome who knew a lot about sin, kind of like we do. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin, uh, continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For we were buried therefore with him by the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He's addressing them because they had the same idea. They had the same deception running rampant in their head that it doesn't matter what they do anymore because Christ has covered it, <clears throat> which is a true statement. Christ has covered my past sins, my present sins, my future sins. That's not up for debate. Scripture attests to that. All of my sins, past, present, and future, they have been forgiven. But it doesn't equal liberty, and it doesn't equal license. Because Paul here is talking to the people at Rome. He's like, and they're even asking. They're even saying, hey, can't we go out and do whatever we want? He's like, no, no, that's not the point. That's not the point. Just as Jesus died and was raised, you too have died and been raised. You, you too have, have died. You're, you have died to your former self. The newness has come, and in the newness of this life in which Jesus is trying to make you look more and more like him, that means that things like sin we start to avoid. We start to leave behind. As a matter of fact, even from the get-go of the gospel, part of the gospel is that we see our sin, we acknowledge our sin, we confess, we repent of that sin, and we choose Jesus over it. So why would we return to that previous pattern of life. That's not what new does. 
New doesn't go back to old. New doesn't go back to who we were formerly. No, new lives in newness. New is understanding that new life has been given to us, so we need to live in that, pursue that, actively seek that, and pray for that. So do we continue to sin so that grace may abound all the more? By no means. No, absolutely not would be his modern way. Like, nope, mm mm-mm, nope. We're new, so be new, live new. So what does... So what is, what is the point now? Like, if it's not that we can go and do whatever we want, if, uh, if, if sin matters, then, then what do we do with it when it comes in? Because here, here's the thing. Like, I have been forgiven of everything. Like, all of it. Like, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, which is not up there, it tells us that we have been forgiven of all and we're continued to be forgiven of all by the work of Jesus. His death was once and for all good to take care of all of my sin eternally. So why do I confess? Why do I repent? What's the point of that? Well, Number one, John, in in his word, is very, very clear here. He's telling us that we need to. If we sin, we do that. But what's the rationale behind it? If it's not about the eternal consequence, then why do I do it? I think it's interesting that that God chooses to refer to himself to us as Abba, as like dad. Like I I think one of my my good friends, he, 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 he says it's like Papa. And I think we've only got one family that their kid in here calls him Papa. I think it's Abram. I know Ruby calls you Papa, and every time I hear it, I love it. Like, Papa, I love it. But it's just that, not just Father, but like Dad that I know intimately. Dad that I know, that I love, that I trust intimately. I find it so amazing that that is how God wants us to think about Him. So imagine for just a second, just thinking through what like confession repentance really looks like in the, in the scope of this. As a believer who has sinned, what do we do with it? Um, Like, imagine, maybe you didn't have this dad, but imagine that you did. You had a dad that told you early on that he'll love you no matter what. He'll love you no matter what. There's nothing that you can do that will make him unlove you, okay? And then he told you this. He said, "Uh, there's nothing that you can do that I won't forgive you of. Not a thing. Imagine that dad. And so imagine with with that dad, uh, you, you lie to him. Or you, you borrow his car without asking, which is called stealing. Um, or uh, you, you say something bad about him behind his back. And then you, you find out that he knows about it. So what's our motivation to do with that dad? Who tells us, I will love you no matter what. No matter what you do, my love will not be taken away from you. I will not unlove you. I will forgive you of anything that you ever do. As a matter of fact, I've forgiven you before you even did it. What is our motivation with that dad if we love him in response? See, here's where religion falls short. Here's where if we're pursuing God religiously instead of relationally, here's where religion falls short. Religion says that I don't do anything. Religion says that I don't have another move to play because I don't need to. Religion says that, that I'm okay. My dad told me that he's going to love me no matter what. No matter what I do, he's always going to love me, never unlove me. Religion declares that I've been forgiven of everything, so it doesn't matter what I do. Even if he knows, religion, it it, it doesn't matter. I do nothing. There's nothing I need to do. But relationship, on the other hand, when we are tethered to a loving father who has said, I will love you no matter what. I will never unlove you. I will forgive you of anything you ever do. As a matter of fact, it's already done. 
relationship with that type of dad begs us to do something more when we know that we have transgressed his heart, transgressed his love, and gone against his will for our life. Even though forgiveness has been granted, we still go to him with humility, with the love that he displays for us, the love that he desires for us to display to him, and we say we're sorry. Even though we no longer require forgiveness, we desire forgiveness. Because in the scope of relationship, what forgiveness does is it heals what's broken. Do not let anyone deceive you and tell you that your sin does not matter. Do not let anyone deceive us and tell us that as believers, as Christ followers, that our sin does not matter. Will my sin separate me from God eternally? Absolutely not. Because he who has saved me will not unsave me. We trust in that. But relationship can still be damaged. Imagine that dad again, that hypothetical dad, that earthly father, to where he said, I'll love you no matter what. I'll never unlove you. I'll forgive you of anything. As a matter of fact, I've already done it. Imagine that he finds out that you lied to him. Could you possibly walk into the room with him, him knowing, and you not say anything? Do anything? Seek to make amends for the wrong that you did, that I did. Religion says you do nothing because you don't need anything. Relationship says, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't need your forgiveness, but, but I want it. Confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness to fix what has been damaged. Not by God, but by us. passage later goes on to say that there's, there's no way as a result of the seed that has been placed in me that I can live like a religious follower of Jesus. There's no way that I can go on and just perpetually live in unchecked sin. It says it's not possible. It doesn't say that we shouldn't. It says that we cannot. That we cannot. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot, cannot, not will not, not desire not, but cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Once the spirit, that seed that this passage is promising, has come to live in us, there's no way, and this is what Scripture attests, this is not anecdotal, this is scriptural, this is fact, there's no way that we can go out and continue just to live in sin without something in me saying stop. And that something in me saying stop is not me, just as Paul attests to, it's the very spirit of God, the seed of God, the seal of God that he's placed in us. Because remember, this law is not about physical stuff, it's about the spiritual. And God would not ask us to avoid sin, to leave sin, unless he gave us the means to do so. And he does through his very self that comes in and lives in me, the seed of God, the spirit of God. And it will not let me go out and just live apart from him. He says we cannot. So, what do we do with it? What's the point? Well, I think first and foremost, I think we apply this test to our own life. Like, and we ask the question, like, if you've been doing church for a while, you've been sitting in church for a while, maybe all your life, you need to ask the question, can, can I go out and do whatever I want and not be bothered by it, not be convicted by it would be the spiritual word. 
not be brought to the point of even though I understand that I've got God's forgiveness, I want to go to him and say, I, I know that you've already granted it to me, but, but I just need to tell you what I've done to seek that restoration. We ask ourselves, can, can we do that? Because if you can say that you can go out and your sin doesn't bother you, I, man, we need to have a conversation this week. Like, we, we, we need to meet at the coffee shop of your choosing, and we need to sit down and talk about what the gospel really is. Because I'll be honest, if you can go out and sin and it doesn't bother you, if I can go out and sin and it has no effect on me, according to this passage right here, we are not known by God and we don't know Him. And we need to start from square one. If you're listening you want to meet, hey, we'll do it. Zoom, coffee, I don't care. We need to chat and have a conversation. So I think it's a litmus test for me, for us. But I think it also should propel me back to the very beginning of this book and ask me this, like, why is it? Maybe you are a believer and sin bothers you a little bit, but it doesn't bother you greatly. Maybe it bothers you to the point to where, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that, and I'll just tell God I'm sorry, but I'll kind of return to it like a dog returning to its vomit, is what Scripture would say. Maybe you just need to, man, you just need to tell God, you know what, God, I haven't, I haven't understood what this is supposed to look like at all. Like this repentance idea, this turning from sin, I, I missed it somewhere. And starting today, you just say, God, I'm going to take sin seriously. Man, the thing that pops into my mind when I think about 1 John is when it says that if we abide in him and he abides in us, we should walk just as he walked in chapter 2. And then I think about Jesus and the way that he lived, the way that, that he walked through this earth. And, and to be honest, like if this whole point of all of this is we're being made into people that look more and more like Jesus, my life should begin to look very much like his. And if we start to look and act and think like Jesus, man, ask ourselves this. How did Jesus think about sin? What did Jesus do with sin? Well, number one, Jesus was God and he avoided it entirely. But it's not to say that he wasn't tempted. And it's not to say that when he encountered it, he didn't do something about it. Remember, there were two occasions where he went in the temple, the place that was designed to worship God. And he went in there and he said, you have made this place into something it's not supposed to be. So he sat down, he made a whip, and he began to chase people out and flip over tables. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about any of those things. No, it was his heart for sin. He said this has no place in the temple, the place that's designed and to, to, told to be a place of worship for God. Guess what? The location of the temple has changed. The purpose of the temple is not. The location of the temple now is here. Jesus' heart and Jesus' attitude, if we're seeking to mimic that, if we're seeking to live in that, is he says, I will chase sin out no matter what the cost. For us, my heart should echo the same thing. If this place is designed for worship of God, then I should desire that no sin comes in. Not one. Shall that we continue to sin so that grace may abound all the more? By no means. Do you want to crucify Christ again? No, he's already died once. He doesn't need to die again. Who needs to die is you and me. Jesus' attitude to sin was, man, he would, he would die for it. We can't tolerate it. We can't be a people who pursue Jesus and think that sin, even a little, is okay. That's not the heart of Jesus. That's not who we're being sanctified and made into. If Jesus could have tolerated just a little of sin, he, he wouldn't have died. But he says, no, I need to wipe it all out for those who believe. My heart needs to say the same thing. Now, here's the understanding. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Paul was not there yet. Paul even said, I haven't made it yet. There will be tension. It doesn't give us liberty, doesn't give us license to entertain sin, but it does give us an understanding that there is grace for us. 
John said, I write this letter so that you may not sin, but if you do, understand that you have an advocate, someone that is an intermediary between you and the Father, and he's going there before you constantly. So we live in that hope, we live in that peace, but here's, here's our response. When sin comes in, man, we repent, we confess quickly. We don't wait. We don't be like, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. Maybe I'll write it in my journal tomorrow. No, no, no. If, if we recognize sin, if we see it, man, we take care of it then, there, no matter where we are. In traffic, at work, in the middle of a conversation, maybe you sin against somebody else. You acknowledge it to God, then you acknowledge it to that person right then, right there. We deal with it quickly. Confess, repent. We confess it, we tell God what we did, and then we repent. We actually, in our heart, maybe even in our body, turn from that, turn to Jesus. Confess, repent quickly. But here's the, here's the sticky part. We don't just apply it here. Here's where it gets tough. We apply it here. Like we apply it here. And so that means that in my life, I don't want it. That means I don't want it in your life either. That's what, man, there's a great song. That's, that's what love is. That's what love is, like literally. Like if we want the best for our brothers and our sisters in Christ, the very, very next week we're going to talk about what this looks like. But man, for us, like we don't tolerate it here. We don't entertain it here. We don't think it's okay here. But in love, we don't want it here either. We don't want it within the family. So that means that when a brother or sister is rapidly and egregiously transgressing God's desire and God's designs and God's law, we go to them in love. This is not judgment because judgment is based on the eternal ideas, but not these types of things. This is holding to a standard in love, and we go to them. We say, I love you enough to ask you a couple questions. Why are you doing what you're doing? How can I help? How can I pray for you? What can I do? We don't tolerate it here, but we don't tolerate it here either because we want to make sure that those claiming to be our brothers and sisters are, are not falling into this other category of those who can go out and live perpetually in sin and it not affect them. And in fact, they're not our brothers and sisters at all. We don't want that. So we want to go. We want to ask the questions. We want to lovingly move them towards repentance in whatever way that we can and ask that God fix what is broken in them and move them to a place to where they just say, Dad, I'm sorry. Thank you for your eternal forgiveness. Now, God, I'm seeking restoration. We don't tolerate it here. But we don't tolerate it here either. And I think here's where the warning extends, the third thing that we do with this. I think if someone is offering a voice in your life and they are someone that sin does not affect them, we don't let them have a voice in our life. And I know that sounds harsh, but the warning that was given last week that there will be people that will try to lead you astray, the warning still exists here that if someone is telling you, hey, I want to help you get through your life, I want to make things better for you, I want to teach you what it means to know God and do all these things, but yet their life says that they don't care about sin, we don't need to give them a voice in our life at this point. As a matter of fact, we need to pray for the voice of God in their life. And maybe even the most loving thing that we can say is, hey, um, I don't think I need to listen to you anymore. And I know that sounds terrible, but again, we do have to preserve what God has done in us. We do have to take seriously what God has done in us and is doing in us, and that means that we give voices to people who are qualified to speak in our life, and sometimes we shut other voices off. It's not just a litmus test for me, and it's not just a litmus test for us. 
but it's also a litmus test to people who are trying to speak their version of truth into our lives. And I know that sounds crazy, but I believe we have to do it. Maybe that person is one of those three names that we talked about a couple weeks ago, someone that's close to you but far from Jesus. No matter what they claim, if their life says otherwise, and we've been given a standard so that we can see, so that we can look, so that we can apply it to ourselves and others, it's not eternal judgment, it's a standard, it's different. Maybe they need to be one of those names that you're praying for their salvation. You're praying for God to convict them, move them to repentance, save them. So can a Christian, someone who has been bought with the blood of Jesus, can they sin? Yes. Doesn't make it okay. We still do something with it. And I think the next step after we do something with it, which is confession, repentance, going to dad, saying, dad, I'm sorry I did this against you. Forgive me. I think the next step is we put in our place, in place of us in that sin, we put as many barriers as we can. We take it seriously enough that we don't want to return to it. We don't want to repeat performance. We want to put it out in a way and truly turn from it. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what that looks like for the sin that tends to rear its head. Because I think if we do just a quick straw poll, most people would say, yeah, there's, there's one or two that constantly trip me up. Figure out how to get them out of your path. Figure out who needs to get involved. Sin is serious. It has consequences. The best way to deal with it is to deal with it before it happens. That doesn't make us legalists. That makes us people who are out for the glory of God and who understand the heart of God and understand the desire of God is to make us into people who look more and more like Jesus. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for Scripture, even the hard parts of Scripture. God, I pray that you would speak clearly to us today, God, about who we are in you. Give us great peace. Give us great hope that we are your kids because you love us. And then you're making us into a people that look more and more like Jesus. But God, I pray that you would continue to reproduce the heart of Jesus in us as it relates to sin and as it relates to forgiveness. God, that we would deal with it quickly, we'd deal with it well, and we would understand that we don't want it. Renew in us a spirit, God, of uh, a desire to avoid the things that pull us away from you. Remove, uh, put in us, God, a desire to, to stay away from things that are going to make us miss the mark, lead us towards sin. God, let us take you so seriously that we take sin seriously. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.